0: I'm Lucy, and today I'll be talking about the mysterious Mademoiselle de Maupin, an opera singer who swashbuckled her way through Louis XIV's France and became a heroine and a hero in 19th century fiction. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Footnoting History. Who was Mademoiselle de Maupin? Most famously, she was the eponymous, gender-bending heroine of Théophile Gautier's 1835 novel. So I'll be discussing this first before trying to excavate the layers of fiction to get at historical fact. In Gautier's work of romantic aestheticism, a philosophical manifesto of sorts, Mademoiselle de Maupin appears first as the object of fascination for the Chevalier d'Albert, and as a young man named Theodore. But then Gautier takes us into the mind of Théodore, also known as Madeleine, and gives us her take on the society around her. Gautier was writing at a time when social expectations of men and women alike were changing, and social barriers between them becoming more rigid. This was true to some degree across classes, for various reasons, but Gautier focuses on the world of the bourgeoisie and the demi-monde into which bourgeois men sometimes crossed. So it's not a coincidence that Théodore Madeleine declares her intention to dress as a man to see what they, men, are like when not responding, through self-censorship or self-display, to the presence of women. She's unimpressed by what she finds. One of the most striking characteristics of Gautier's Mademoiselle de Maupin is how well she gets away with breaking the rules. 19th century novels were full of eponymous, rule-breaking heroines, but they usually meet bad ends. Lucy, the bride of Lammermoor, Sir Walter Scott, goes mad, and there are a whole slew of heroines across Europe, uh, in novels of Tolstoy, Theodore Fontana, etc., who die as a result of their social and sexual transgressions, most famously, of course, uh, Madame Bovary. De Flaubert. But Gautier's Maupin escapes this fate, perhaps because she is a character for whom neither flirtation, with an enamoured noblewoman, for instance, or dueling with just about everyone, is a matter to be taken very seriously. Gautier presents Theodore Madeleine as a character both playful and manipulative. So, who was the original Mademoiselle de Maupin? She is a character more full of apparent contradictions uh, and mystery than Gautier's, not least because she does appear to take love and life and identity very seriously indeed, while leading an existence that involved much travel, risky masquerading, and often rapid changes of both professions and lovers. Her name itself is a contradiction of sorts, a stage confection, using the title mademoiselle with her married name. She's often identified as Julie d'Aubigny, but the oldest sources and most scholarly recent ones give her first name as unknown. She was born to a well-placed secretary, d'Aubigny, was well-educated and married into the minor nobility while still very young. Little is known about her marriage. Historians of the late 19th and early 20th centuries tended to moralize about it, saying that her immoral tendencies, i.e taking lovers, men and women alike, uh, drove her husband away. The known facts, however, don't bear this out. It was de Maupin herself, according to her earliest biography, in a dictionary put together by the mid-18th century by the Parfait brothers, who got her husband a commission in Provence. During his absence, according to the same source, de Maupin, who is described as having a natural taste for the exercise of arms, made the acquaintance of a fencing master named Soran. The two became lovers, and left together for Marseille, as one does, I suppose. This certainly indicates that de Maupin's marriage was less than satisfying, if not deeply unhappy, but it also suggests that the marriage may have been mutually tolerant and permissive, as is suggested by the fact that she reunited with her husband in later life, and they spent the last several years of their lives together. Be it noted that de Maupin died at the shockingly young age of 33, but no mention of specific illness or of violence is made by any of her biographers. But, back to Marseille. Beginning in her late teens or early 20s, there's some disagreement about her date of birth, Mademoiselle de Maupin was travelling through southern France with Sorane, earning a living by singing opera in public and doing exhibition fencing. This is arguably the best busking combination ever. As a result of this, they got a contract at the Marseille Opera. According to audience reports, Mademoiselle de Maupin had an exceptionally beautiful contralto voice, a very low register, and compensated for her inability to read music by a prodigious memory. Moreover, she was supposedly very beautiful, not exceptionally tall, but with Titian-coloured hair, large blue eyes, an aquiline nose, and very fair skin. This, too, comes from the sober dictionary of the Parfait Brothers de maupin spent several years in marseille before leaving for paris when the southern city became too hot to hold her now nineteenth-century novelists and historians have attributed this to the episode which they retell with glee and some malice as a time when de maupin took a nun as her lover according to the earliest extant source on it though a collection of anecdotes on theatre people published in seventeen seventy five it didn't actually happen like that now the brothers parfait when writing their dictionary were very scrupulous about putting only verifiable, or reliable in their view, facts in. So in reporting de Maupin's move to Paris, they describe it in wonderfully euphemistic 18th century French as being inspired by a certain adventure which has nothing to do with our work. In the anecdote dramatique of Monsieur Clément and Abbé de Laporte, though, de Maupin fell in love with, or in their words, conceived a too tender passion for, a young woman of Marseille, a tender passion which appears to have been reciprocated as the young woman's parents put her into a convent in an attempt to put a stop to it. When de Maupin learned where her lover had been put, she followed her there and presented herself to a convent as a novice. She was accepted as such. After some time, it's unclear how long, a nun of the house died, and that's when things got really crazy. Dumopin dug up the dead nun, placed the body in her lover's bed, and set fire to the room. In the ensuing confusion, which we may imagine to be considerable, she and her lover escaped. Outraged parties, it's unclear who, started legal proceedings against her, but these were eventually dropped, both because they had made them using her maiden name of Daubigny, by which she was known, and because the young woman was recovered by her family. It's unclear whether she and de Maupin separated out of necessity, lost each other in flight, or were forced apart. Certain is that de Maupin arrived in Paris alone, and proceeded to be accepted at the Académie Royale de Musique, and make her debut at the opera in 1702. Even the Sobe Parfait brothers wax lyrical about her reception at the Paris Opera. Her premiere was as the goddess Pallas Athena in Lully's Cadmus et Hermione. There's a link in the bibliography to a performance of the opera. She was so enthusiastically received by the audience that she came out for an extra bow in the stage machinery which lowered her from the heavens and saluted the audience with her helmet to rapturous acclaim. She successfully took on roles in a variety of genres, creating roles, some of which were written for her, and the Parfait brothers note that this was partially because she was an excellent actress, as well as a good singer. The restrained Parfait brothers observe that that passion which Mademoiselle Maupin had for dueling, and her habit of frequently dressing as a man, gave rise to many stories being told about her, which, true or false, are of a sensationalist character, and which we have therefore not included no one else since except perhaps the new grove dictionary of opera has been so restrained in describing the career of mademoiselle de maupin and speculations about it partly i think this is attributable to the historical context this was a time famously uh, of absolutism in france the height of absolutist rhetoric but there was always more absolutist rhetoric than actual absolute monarchical control in France. And at the turn of the 18th century, France was less than one generation removed from a very troubled time indeed, where two monarchs were assassinated. Then Louis 13th managed not to be assassinated. Excellent work. Um, but during the childhood of Louis XIV, who would become the sun king, There were a lot of popular protest movements, and he himself, as as an adolescent, was forced to flee Paris. And many historians have speculated that this direct experience of a loss of control, an absence of power, affected his elaborate, almost obsessive creation of a court under his direct, almost pathological control. Anyway, here we are in the court life and demi-monde life opera, so scandalous, uh, of the turn of the 18th century. And late 19th and early 20th century historians covering the career of Mademoiselle de Maupin sensationalize this as a wicked and decadent time. How, they lament, could this woman be otherwise living in such a lax and scandalous epoch? But it is worth noting that Mademoiselle de Maupin, she wasn't somehow, um, you know, uh, swashbuckling around, fighting duels, having affairs with men and women, because this was expected. Au contraire, Uh, dueling had been officially forbidden for some decades partly as a measure of creating and enforcing, or trying to, uh, this absolutist control of the monarchy. Um, And this will be known to any listeners who have ever read or seen an adaptation of The Three Musketeers. I'll probably do a podcast on that sometime, because I'm deeply obsessed with the D'Artagnan novels, but that is indeed a topic for another time. Anyway, duels were forbidden. They were a method of defending personal honor and pursuing justice, which could take place entirely without reference to the mechanisms of the state. This was not to be allowed to happen. So a duel was de facto a way of stepping outside legal control. But I cannot, cannot emphasize enough, there is a lot more rhetoric of control than there is practical control. Moreover, in the communities of court life, where de Maupin moved uh, as a man as well as, as a woman, manners and identity were seen as very closely bound together. And courtliness, how you behaved and carried yourself, was a very, very important form of social currency. So that de Maupin was successfully able to defend herself, to make a name for herself as a courtly fighter, a worthy opponent, an honorable person uh, who was not legally punished for any of her exploits. Moreover, regarding the question of her gender identity and gender performance, which appears more or less to have been accepted if then retold in sensational stories by uh, her peers, It is worth remembering that she is an opera singer. This is not irrelevant. Opera, at this point in history, had some ties to the court, where, for instance, Lully's Cadmus et Amiens was created, but also deep, long, strong roots to the season of Carnival preceding Lent, where opera, like Carnival, became a space for deliberate inversion, for a deliberate pushing of the rules, playing with expectations. Moreover, authorities at this time were generally more tolerant of women dressing as men than men dressing as women. After all, women dressing as men could be seen as aspirational. I mean, who doesn't want to be a man, right? Whereas men dressing as women, clearly deeply suspect, because who would want to be a woman? So there's a lot of misogyny here, but it played into Maupin's favor. The anecdote dramatique Recount one episode in which she fought three men in a duel, one, and was pardoned by the Duc d'Orléans. I am surprised Dumas didn't write a novel about her, honestly. Interestingly, later sources say that the lady whom de Maupin propositioned, which led to this uh, three way fight, was offended by de Maupin's so called indecent advances. Uh, the anecdotes dramatiques don't say this. Uh, They just point out that three of the lady's friends were offended and proceeded to challenge her to duels, which worked out poorly for them. Why de Maupin eventually left Paris, and this career of beating up people who insulted her, is even murkier than why she left Marseille. What we do know, according to Clément and de Laporte, is that she left the opera and went to Brussels, where she became the mistress of the elector of Bavaria, as one does. When he left her for another, though, she threw the money with which he tried to buy her off at the head of the man who brought it to her, and called him a word so bad that the 18th-century sources recounting this do not print it, but just put a little ellipse. I have no idea what this means. And she returned to the Paris Opera, and to a relationship with another ex of hers, the Count d'Albert. Again, this is taken from the 1775 Anecdote Dramatique, which reprint a manuscript poem which she sent to the Count while he was at war which rather beautifully plays with literary tropes of female frailty, saying, I know nothing of the weakness of my sex. I was made for danger as much as for tenderness, but I am not permitted to fly to your side. The final catalyst for the Maupin's retirement from opera and for her return to her husband <laughs> is unknown. But the New Grove Dictionary of Opera notes that she is rumored to have attempted suicide when the soprano, Fanchon Moureau, rejected her advances. How this is attested, I do not know. Having retired, though, she led a surprisingly tranquil retirement, by all accounts. We don't have sources about how she lived out the rest of her life, until her death in 1707. So what does this tell us? Mademoiselle de Maupin's career can hardly be taken as representative. She's a member of the upper classes, for one thing, and her behavior is often deliberately scandalous, both as an opera singer, uh, as a mistress, as a lover of men and women. She is walking tightrope lines of identity uh, and of legality. In fact, she's often technically on the wrong side of the law. But she also shows, surprisingly, how much she could get away with. And this, I think, is a very important point when considering the gap between the rules set by historical authorities, laws, mores, whether officially written or in the form of social expectations, and practice, what could be done by individuals, what could be accepted enough that an individual could pursue uh, An unconventional way of life. There is one way in which Mademoiselle de Maupin is, sadly, very representative. As often with women's narratives, we don't hear her own voice. We never learn directly how she felt or what she thought. The only fragmentary evidence we have is this one reprinted poem attributed and a few reprinted letters. We see, for the most part, Only the results of her feelings, her aspirations, her fears, perhaps, in how she acted. But she's not alone. We see her, and we see also, however fleetingly, the history of a young woman of Marseille who loved her, who was shut up in a convent for her. Uh, We see the soprano who rejected her advances. We see audiences who went crazy for her in a wide range of roles, as the armor-wearing goddess Pallas Athena, as the outraged queen Medea, and on and on and on. Um, We see even more peripherally women quietly taking charge of commerce and business. The anecdote dramatique, out of which uh, much of our information about uh, Mademoiselle de Maupin comes, were printed by a publishing house managed by a widow. Mademoiselle de Maupin herself, however, remains something of an enigma. Uh, Not Gautier's deliberately provocative and ambiguous Théodore Madeleine, perhaps, but someone much more interesting, someone whose name we do not know, but who was absolutely determined to always remain true to herself. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at HistoryFootnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. See you next week.